Could I ask you to please take your Bibles this morning and to turn to, not Revelation this morning, but to Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, this is the portion we're going to be looking at, uh, verses 1 to 31. We're not going to read it up front. We're going to work our way through this um, chapter of Isaiah's prophecy together this morning, and we'll read all the verses, but as we work our way through the chapter. So please do keep your Bibles uh, open before you in this portion of Scripture. Um, much of the book of Revelation is drawn from Isaiah's prophecy, uh, and particularly as we get to the last couple chapters of Isaiah, we're going to be drawing quite heavily uh, on some of the later chapters in Isaiah's prophecy as well. Uh, but today I have just chosen for us to take a pause from our series uh, in Revelation uh, just to consider God's comfort to His people at times like this. We've come to the end of a very sad week uh, in the life of our church, and who is not in need of comfort? But even wider than, than the immediate sadness of this past week, as we just look generally uh, at the world around us, uh, we see chaos and turmoil, we see strange weather patterns, we see violence and terrorism is rampant, marriages are under attack, families are falling apart. Children are rebelling against their parents. Corruption seems to be the order of the day. Morality, sexuality are turned upside down. Loved ones are terminally ill. Businesses are under pressure. People are being retrenched. Coming closer to the church, professing Christians and even entire denominations are turning their back on the truth of God's word. As we consider the world in which we live, who is not in need of a word of comfort from the Lord our God? I know I do, and, and I'm sure that many of you do too. And so as we come to God's Word today, we're going to just take a pause uh, in, in Revelation. We're going to consider this portion in Isaiah chapter 40, which, like our studies in Revelation, marks the turning point in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah's previous 39 chapters have mainly been about the judgment of God against his people for having turned away from him. But now from chapter 40 onwards in Isaiah, we see what God has in store for those who are his people. Last week in Revelation 19, verse 1 to 10, we saw the turning point from, from judgment uh, of God as Babylon is destroyed to us lifting our eyes to heaven. And so I think Isaiah chapter 40 is really a parallel point in Isaiah's prophecy. And so in the first place today, as we just consider this chapter before us, I want us to see that God's desire to comfort His people. We start with a, a wonderful insight into the character of God, into the heart of God, really what motivates God's actions towards His people. And it is a longing desire to comfort His people. Let's read from verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. 
a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry! And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So we must start today where God's word places the emphasis, which is the desire of God in and through all the circumstances of life which he has ordained for each of us to walk in. God's desire is to bring his people to a place of knowing his comfort. There is a a special gentleness here in verses 1 and 2 as God expresses his deep desire to comfort his people, declaring to them that the times of his discipline and, and chastisement are over. Those things that brought the people back to himself, now God extends to, to, to them his comfort. Now verse 3 onwards needs to be read in the light of the New Testament because Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, hopefully it rings a bell as we read that, it was specifically quoted to refer to the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist as he prepared the way in the wilderness for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as God desires to bring a, a word of comfort to his people Israel, 2,700 years ago, people who had suffered under his judgment for their sins, people who were still going to suffer more as they were about to be taken off as exiles into Babylon, we see that God comes to comfort his people. How? By pointing them forward to the coming Messiah, pointing them forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, what we have in these verses is what is known as prophetic foreshortening. Now, don't let the word scare you off. Think it through. Prophecy is looking to the, fore, to the future. But there's a, a concept called prophetic foreshortening where Isaiah is given this vision into the future of the coming of the Messiah. And what he sees as one single future event, we see later on unfolding in the New Testament as two events. I think a helpful illustration of this concept of prophetic foreshortening is if you've ever been to the KZN Midlands and you stand in a distance and you look towards the Drakensberg Mountains, what you see in the distance appears to be a single mountain range. But if you've ever hiked in the berg, 
you will know that that is not true. The minute you get to the top of one mountain peak, you see that there's a long valley and plain before the next mountain peak. And you think, well, that must be the top. When you get to the, eventually get to the top of that one, you find you've just reached the next peak and there's another valley. And then there's another mountain peak in the distance. And so from a distance, it looks like one. But as you get up close, you see multiple rows uh, of peaks. And so what Isaiah sees as he looks to the future is the coming of the Messiah. But what he sees as the first coming and the second coming, from his perspective, both distant events, they looked like one event. But as we come to the scriptures, we see that they are actually two separate events. And that's really where we've been spending our time in the book of Revelation, between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And so we can see here in verse 3 and 4 that this is clearly speaking of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that that was attributed to his first coming with John the Baptist. And even verse 5, verse 5 speaks of his glory. And we can see that that also applies to the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But there does seem to be more going on in verse 5, where Isaiah says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This does seem to be pointing more specifically to the, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we know from Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, that every eye will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. But the key to understanding this message of, God's, of comfort to God's people is then bound up in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his coming into the world. This ties up with Isaiah, what he's already told us back in chapter 9, verse 7. Remember Isaiah said, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The whole book of Isaiah has actually been called by theologians the fifth gospel because it is so Christ-saturated. It is so focused on pointing us forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there can be no real understanding or experience of God's comfort apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Isaiah is told to announce. In comforting the people, he must announce the coming of the Messiah. Now verse 6 to 8 confirms that real hope and real comfort in this life is never to be found in ourselves or in other people. Even the best men, even the greatest of kings are still men, people who fade away like the grass in the heat of the day. But the word of the Lord, God's commitment to his promises, God's commitment to his covenants of grace, that will stand forever. He will save, he will redeem, he will forgive, he will restore, he will comfort 
And then in verse 9 to 11, it brings us again back to the source of our comfort, which is none other than Jesus. Verse 9 calls on the herald, this prophetic voice of announcement, to declare the gospel, to declare it boldly from the mountaintops of Jerusalem, behold your God. What a declaration of the deity of Jesus, God in the flesh, who comes in verse 10 with all power and authority to execute both salvation and judgment. He has both reward and recompense in his hand, but who also comes in meekness and the tenderness of a shepherd. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What an amazing God that we have, who not only desires to to comfort his people, but who himself becomes a man in order to be able to comfort us, to enter into our weakness, to become our perfect mediator, high priest, He is the ultimate good shepherd. God's desire to comfort his people came at the greatest cost ever imaginable to God himself. The giving up of his own son to suffer and die in our place so that we might know salvation, so that we might be restored to God, so that we might know his love and care. A heavenly father who loves us and comforts us in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus said in John 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so in verse 1 to 11, we have a wonderful description of God's deep desire to comfort his people. But desire, we know, is, is worth nothing if there is not also the ability to carry out the desire. How many people have said with the best intentions what they promise to do for you, but then they never deliver? Now there's a modern trend going on in Christianity the last maybe 15 or 20 years, particularly which teaches that the plans of God, the desires of God can be frustrated by men, can be frustrated by our free will, can be frustrated by our evil actions. It's called open theism. So God has a desire, God has a plan, he has a purpose, but human beings can thwart that purpose. Now if open theism is true, then God's desire to comfort you and me this morning has absolutely no value. It's nice to know about, but it really doesn't mean anything if you or I can thwart his plans. And so in the second place, it's crucial this morning that we see God's ability to comfort his people. And we see that in verses 12 to 17. These are some of the most wonderful verses in all the Bible regarding the greatness of our God. And they are recorded for us here, right now, for the express purpose of helping us to see that God's desire to comfort his people is matched by his ability to actually comfort us. Nothing, no one can thwart the plan of God to carry out his desire to comfort his people. This is really a definition of the sovereignty of God. He does what he purposes. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand 
and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Who did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon, with all its massive forests, would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Here is God showing us his CV. These are his credentials for us to know without any shadow of a doubt that he is the God of all comfort. Verse 12 speaks of his power in creation. Verse 13 and 14, his incredible wisdom and understanding. Verse 15, his authority over all the peoples of the earth. Verse 16 and 17, of his infinite worthiness to be worshipped above all things. All of this we are told about God to show us that he is able. As the almighty creator with perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge of all things, with sovereign power over all people, with all glory and majesty, he is our God of comfort. His desire to comfort us is not empty. It's not a vain desire. It's a desire backed by awesome, sovereign ability. Now, verse 18 to 20 are, are, are there, I think, for us. Well, obviously, they're there for us, but they're there for us because of our weakness, because of our lack of faith. For in the face of these amazing verses about the greatness and the power and the wisdom of God, we need to be reminded to stop trusting in idols. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God, or, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? Really? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and makes silver jewelry for it. The one who's too poor for an offering chooses a piece of wood that will not rot, and then he seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Now, please don't think that we don't need this reminder because it is so subtle and so easy to forget the truth about God and to attach our hearts to the things of this world to place our trust and our security and our comfort in the idols of this world. Isaiah is very simply wanting to expose the idols of, of our hearts for what they really are. Just useless objects of our own fabrication. They can't talk, they can't move, they just sit there. What are our idols today? I haven't been in all of your homes, but those that I have been into, I haven't seen any golden objects on the mantelpiece or wooden idols that you bow down to on a daily basis. I hope not. But ours are so much more subtle, are they not? No matter how secure your job may be, no matter how large your bank balance or your investment portfolio may be, how successful your business may be, how adequate your pension may be, how vibrant today your health and strength may be, 
Isaiah is reminding us that if we look to anything other than God for comfort, we are in for a shocking disappointment. Everything of this world that takes our worship and our attention and our trust of God is an idol made by the hands of men which is unable to do anything because it is not God. And so this calls us to really examine our hearts to see what we would call as our functional idols. Why do I say a functional idol? Well, what is, what is functioning as an idol in your life? When bad news comes, where do you go for comfort? When you hear about the, the stock market crashing, do you immediately quickly go and open your portfolio to see how well you've managed to ride the bump? That's your functional savior. When you hear about crime in the area, do you immediately go and check that your alarm system is up and running and working? That's your functional savior. I'm not saying these things are unimportant, but where do we go for security, for identity, for joy, for meaning, for purpose? In the wake of Stuart's death this past week, what has rattled your cage so much? Or has everything that's happened driven you closer and closer to God? If we find anything has displaced God from the thrones of our hearts, we are firstly meant to see these things for their futility. And then we are to fix our eyes back on God, His power, His majesty, His love, His ability, His wisdom, the only one worthy of our praise and worship. He alone is God. And so this little brief detour in, in idolatry and the futility of idolatry, it's, it's meant to stand out in the midst of this passage. What goes before it and now what comes after it, nothing is able to rival our God and His ability to comfort His people. And so in the fourth place, in a sense, Isaiah just carries on uh, from the second point and and so, sorry, that was the futility of idolatry. Let's move on to uh, God's supremacy over all things. We see this in verses 21 to 26. Isaiah wants us to see here that God's ability is not simply sufficient to comfort us. I mean, of course it's that, but it's so much more. He, he wants us to know that God is supreme over everything. Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are these rulers or kings planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, and he blows on them. It's like a, a breath, just a, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Look to the heavens. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one, not one star, not one planet, one, not one heavenly body is missing, because he is mighty. So these verses just really follow on from verse 12 to 17 as God continues to kind of flesh out his CV. 
He gave us the bullet points earlier. Now he's kind of giving us a little paragraph to explain his experience in case we wanted to know a little bit more to show us that we are dealing with the God of all comfort. In all of these declarations, we are to see God in his rightful place as supreme, supreme over all things. And so just as in the previous section, we now see here in verses 21 to 22, the supremacy of God over the entire universe as he sits above and outside of all that he has created. Verse 23 and 24, we see his supremacy over all humanity, powers, rulers of this world. None of them has any power apart from that which is given to them by God. No king or president or dictator is able to withstand the of the Lord. And they're gone. We see the supremacy of his holiness, the root word Holiness, when applied to God, means his otherness. He is totally not like us. He is totally, supremely holy above all that he has made. What great lengths God has gone to in condescending to our level to help us understand that he not only desires to comfort us, but he is able to deliver that comfort because he is supremely above, beyond, and over all things. And so in the final place this morning, I want us to see God's commitment to actually, I couldn't fit actually in there, but to actually comfort his people. He desires to do it, he is able to do it, and now we see that he commits to do it. This last section in Isaiah 40, just in and of itself, it's a wonderful comfort to read because we see that God comes and he meets his people in the midst of their struggles. God is not like that old Bette Midler song, From a Distance. God is watching us from a distance, she said. Nonsense. God's comfort to his people is real. It's personal. It's intimate. It's in the very midst of our sufferings and troubles. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Verse 27 here confronts us in the middle of our struggles and it reveals the attitude which I think if we're honest is true of so many of us in times of grief and suffering. What is the common thought that runs riot in our minds when we are going through times of suffering or heartache, persecution, trouble? What keeps you awake at night? Is it not exactly verse 27? Where is God in all of this mess? Doesn't he know what I'm going through? Doesn't he see what has happened to me? And if he knows, does he not care? Why is God allowing this? Why has God not done something? What have I done to deserve this? That's just our modern version of verse 27. My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. It's not fair. But look at what Isaiah says. How can you think like that? How can you speak like that, he says. And so he just goes on to give us God's counter to this thinking. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. 
In other words, Isaiah is saying, when your doubts and your fears get the better of you, don't question God. Consider God. Go back to your Bibles. Read what he's told you in verses 12 to 17. Consider what he's told you in verses 20 to 26. Read the Psalms. Read the Gospels. Consider your God. How can you think like you do? Have you not read? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding of you, his understanding of your situation is unsearchable. And so comes the practical application of God's comfort to our hearts this morning in verse 29 and to 31. He gives power to the faint, and to him or her who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths faint and grow weary, young men fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God's comfort is not some abstract, warm, fuzzy feeling that everything is going to be okay. No, it's very practical. It's a concrete way of life in the midst of our trials. God is committed to our comfort in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your troubles. How? Well, it tells us by giving us the power we need when we feel ready to faint. By giving us supernatural strength when we feel ready to collapse. And I think verse 30 here is doing exactly what verses 18 to 20 did previously just reminding us of the futility of looking for comfort anywhere other than God's grace. Looking to your youth, looking to your strength, looking to your vigor. These things all run out of steam. So verse 31 brings us back to God. They who wait for the Lord. The NIV says those who hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on eagles' wings they shall run and not be weary and walk and not be faint. Now that Hebrew word wait is not to be understood as kind of just sitting back, doing nothing, kind of waiting for God to act. No, it, it rather conveys the sense of hope. I think the NIV is better here. It speaks about to wait in expectation for the Lord. It's, it's this hope in the Lord those who hope in the Lord, those who seek their comfort in God, those who wait eagerly and, and expectantly for Him to act, they are the ones who will find their strength renewed. They will be given spiritual wings to soar above the trials and the troubles in a way that no human strength can do. Some of us have witnessed this supernatural strengthening of the Lord in a most tangible way in the last week. People carried along by the power of the Almighty God do not run and grow weary. They walk and don't grow faint. So as we end this morning, I want to just tie this comfort which God speaks to his people 2,000 years ago to, to that which he gives to us as believers today. 
we've seen that God's comfort cannot be understood apart from the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the New Testament, we find that Jesus not only fulfills his role as, as comforter from God amongst his disciples, those who place their trust in him, Mary and Martha and Lazarus and others, but he reveals to us how that ministry of comfort continues on in our lives today. Jesus said in John 14, I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, let them not be afraid. Now this word helper that the Lord Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit is the Greek word parakletos. It's a title given to the Holy Spirit and it means one who helps, yes, by consoling, encouraging, mediating, and comforting. So Jesus said these words to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Can you imagine that? For the, the Son of God in the flesh to say to us, as these people, it's better for you that I go. Why? So that the helper, the parakletos, can come to you. When I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so there's a, a gospel application here for those of you who do not believe this morning. Before you can know the encouraging, strengthening comfort of the Holy Spirit, you first need to know his work of convicting you of sin and drawing you to salvation. I, I can't convict you of your sin. I can't tell you that you're a sinner this morning. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Uh, he will convict you of your sin, and he needs to give you a heart of repentance and faith to trust in Jesus as your Savior. And so true comfort starts in salvation. It starts in knowing that your sins are forgiven, that your guilt before God is dealt with. But then for those of us who are in Christ this morning, who are saved, what comfort is there for us when we suffer trials and hardships and grief in this life? Paul gives us the answer in 2 Corinthians 1, just a selection of verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of, of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves have been comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. But we have this treasure. This is the treasure of, of salvation, the treasure of the gospel, the, the treasure of God's comfort. We have this treasure, he says, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are not the source of comfort to each other. God is. We are just jars of clay. And Paul says we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. Yeah, it's confusing to live in this world, especially this last week. But we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry in our bodies, sorry, in the body, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. And so Paul says we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen here on earth are transient, they're gone, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If you don't know the comfort of God through salvation in Jesus Christ today, can I just appeal to you again, please will you repent of your sins today and come to Jesus for that most important comfort that you're going to need on the day of judgment, to know that your sins are forgiven in Christ. But for those of us who know the Lord, and I think that's most of us here this morning, may we find our comfort in the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. As we hope in the Lord, as we wait upon the Lord, that He would cause us to mount up with wings like eagles, that we would run the race set before us with endurance and great joy, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for this opportunity to, in a sense, bring this week of sadness and mourning to a close, knowing that the grief and the sadness that Rachel and the family and the friends of Stuart will continue to feel for many months to come, years to come. We thank you that we can end a week like this coming to the God of all comfort, knowing that you not only desire to comfort us, but you are able to comfort us, and in and through the work of the Holy Spirit, you will comfort us. You will strengthen us, you will equip us, and you will prepare us for the rest of the journey that you have caused us us to run uh, in this life here on earth. And so we do pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.